This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Radiotherapy. It's been an eventful week. We're starting off with a few snippets of news from around the world of medicine and then we'll launch into the program for today. Lady Gaga is back with us for an update on the massive yes vote by the people of Australia to the same-sex marriage survey and we'll talk a little bit about the implications of that for people who identify as LGBTIQ. And I'll be talking about chimpanzees and medical research, um, which is, I have to tell you, actually a good news story. And our resident film and popular culture expert, SK, will be speaking to the significance of Hamlet um, in Freudian psychological terms. So let's get started with a bit of catch up. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Okay, so first up, the Victorian Parliament is still struggling with voluntary assisted dying legislation, which was introduced into the Upper House earlier this week after passing the Lower House a few weeks ago. More drama yesterday as the debate stretched into the night and then the next morning when it was urgently suspended because of a medical emergency. Daniel Molino, the Labor MP for Eastern Victoria, apparently collapsed in his rooms and debate was then suspended until next Tuesday. So it looks at this point likely that the government might have the numbers to pass the legislation, but there are lots of twists and turns yet ahead. There's already been a revision of the bill to reduce the expected time frame for a person to request assisted dying from 12 months life expectancy to six months to appease some opponents of the legislation. Um, And so... Uh, there's also the usual suspects who might have a view on this particular issue. In Amongst them is the former Prime Minister, Paul Keating, who's been quite vocal in his opposition to the assisted dying legislation, which failed to pass the New South Wales Parliament this week also. He's weighed in in opposition to the Victorian Bill, calling it the defeatism of those who think the struggle at the end of life is a struggle in vain. Well, big call. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the... You could call it either way on this issue. Uh, personally, I'm in probably favour of assisted dying, I've got to say, but uh, with appropriate safeguards. We have to make sure that the government doesn't use it as a, an economic rationalist way of simply disposing of those who society considers a burden. And to me, that's uh, the big risk in all of this. But uh, having some control over the way in which we peg out at the end of our lives is in many ways the ultimate civil right. And uh, with the appropriate safeguards in place, uh, I'd be in favour of it, I must say. Mm. Any other votes? Oh, no, I tend to agree. I think it would give people the dignity back at the end of their life that they deserve. And I just, I don't understand. Mind you, I am quite young. And so some of the things that are opposed by some people, I don't quite understand. It's funny, you know, there's a bit of a cognitive bias uh, in in people when they're talking about assisted dying or the concept of euthanasia. You know, uh, from the perspective of young people, if young people are asked, you know, what I would like to have happen to me at the age of 85 if X, Y and Z happened, young people are much more likely to say I'd like to be euthanised rather than go into a nursing home, etc, etc. The the group of people in our society who are least likely to say that they want to be euthanised either in the setting of a terminal diagnosis or... Alzheimer's disease diagnosis or a move into a nursing home that's pending are those who are actually faced with that decision at the time that it's made. And this is where things can get a bit murky in terms of uh, honouring advanced directives. 
for example. So Lady Gaga, if you made yeah. an advance directive now, it reflects your wishes now, but is it likely to reflect your wishes in uh, 60 or 70 years' time? And Probably that's a really, not. really good point. Like, you know, at the moment, it's a hypothetical, whereas yeah. once you're at that point in your life, it seems a lot more real, and I, I wonder how many people's minds would change. It's such a cognitive dis- dissonance, basically. When mm-hmm. you're young, you can't conceive of such a thing happening, and it's so far outside of your realm of experience that it's foreign and frightening and scary. As you get older, as I am... I turned 50 the other week, by the way. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. As you do get older, you know, you tend to get a greater awareness of your own mortality and a greater tolerance of those things that could go wrong. So uh, advanced directives are a bit of a trap in all of this also. Yeah, it's true. I suppose um, they are set up with quite a few safeguards around them, aren't they? You know, you have to have somebody witness the advanced directive. It's dated. There's only a certain period um, beyond which it's not necessarily... Um, valid or relevant, isn't that right? Well, in terms of validity, uh, I think the only force they carry in law, at least in Victoria, is that uh, your treating doctors have to consider the advance directive in any decision that needs to be made. So it's not strictly binding, but it's there as, a, as an aid in decision-making when difficult decisions have to come up. Mm, and I suppose when you're not in a position where you can voice your view clearly yourself, so something to help people make decisions, perhaps in the absence of your casting vote. That's right. And obviously, of course, they need to be made when you do have the capacity to voice a decision and uh, be able to think through all of the uh, implications of decisions you might make. So I think that reason is one of the reasons why people living with dementia are specifically excluded from the current assisted uh, dying bill, Mm -hmm. uh, because it enters a very murky uh, moral and ethical minefield uh, once you open the door in that way. Yes, that's right. And I think, as we mentioned last month, the other people uh, who are excluded from that group are people who currently suffer from mental illness. So I think that's something that we need to... um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this particular legislation is actually implemented, because that would be the next step if it is actually successfully passed, uh, would be uh, how it works in practice. Yeah, the the mental illness exclusion is is interesting, uh, because, you know, the rest of the legislation is couched in terms of people who are experiencing intolerable suffering. And that's very much understood to be a physical pain. But there are people with uh, intractable severe mental illnesses who are going through intractable suffering and, and who, who are we to define another person's suffering? But, uh, you know, I guess when you open that door as well, it, uh, it becomes a, a short road to potentially adverse unintended consequences of the bill. Mm, very true. The other thing I wanted to talk about before we finish discussing our catch-up for the week is um, briefly about the plight of the men who remain on Manus Island as the Australian government packs up its camp around them. There are currently 421 refugees who are still on Manus who have been there Uh, for the past few weeks in defiance of attempts to evict them. Uh, They're fearful for their safety if they're resettled in PNG and they're not willing to leave the camp. But as of now, there is no water, no power and no medical care for these men. All the staff have left. So there's no security either. Um, Yesterday, members of the AMA voted unanimously to call on our Australian government to grant access to the centre so that doctors could assess the men's health, their wellbeing and their living conditions. Um, The AMA President Michael Gannon said the AMA has made many representations on this matter both publicly and in private, but... With a worsening and more dangerous situation emerging on Manus, the Federal Council strongly believes urgent action and answers are needed. Um, He added, um, it is our responsibility as a nation with a strong human rights record to ensure that we look after the health and well-being of these men. Um, And the United Nations has also made a comment describing the situation as a looming humanitarian crisis. So... 
what can we add to that other than just bloody awful? Yeah. Yes. I have some further catch-up, uh, believe it or not. I, this thought just occurred to me uh, as we came in from the green room, but you may have read a press announcement this week uh, that made some of the papers that an Italian neurosurgeon claims uh, to have just completed the world's first successful head transplant. Is that right? That? I must have missed that in that my survey of the news. That radar. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the headline. There's a, there's a big but, however. You know, that was the, the headline grabbing attention around the world. But when you actually read into what he's announced, uh, what he did was uh, he got two dead bodies and transplanted uh, the head of one of them onto the body of the other Ooh. and connected all of the muscles and blood vessels up uh, didn't leave, uh, didn't make any connections with the spinal cord though. So what he's done is essentially a bit of, uh, you know, creative Dr. Frankenstein work, but he hasn't actually performed the world's first successful head transplant. This actually segues into your segment on uh, animal experimentation because uh, previously he'd announced that he'd uh, conducted a head transplant on a chimpanzee and this was uh, a living chimpanzee that he transplanted the head onto the body of another living chimpanzee. Oh, Again, connected me. all of the, the muscles and blood vessels up but uh, didn't, leave the spin- uh, didn't connect the spinal cord. So, oh, dear uh, me. Even if the chimpanzee had woken up from the anaesthetic, which it didn't, it was humanely euthanized after surviving in inverted commas for less than a day, uh, it would have essentially been a head on a stick. But, you know, where are we going yeah. with medical science such that such a thing is even contemplated? Uh, that is horrifying. I find that super horrifying. I, I think that that will actually um, be a, a useful jumping off point in about maybe 15 to 20 minutes when we do start talking about um, uh, chimpanzees and their involvement in medical research. So I, I oh goodness, um, I might have to kind of contain my distress after that particular <laughs> discussion. Yeah. Um, but I have much happier news for the chimpanzee community um, in about 20 minutes oh, or good. so. <laughs> um uh, is there any other catch-up that anybody's got um, other than, of course, what we're going to be talking about next, which is uh, the 61.6% of Australians who voted yes in the same-sex marriage survey, um, which Lady Gaga will be discussing with us coming up next. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. We've been having uh, quite an animated discussion off air about the role of celebrants in um, perhaps the changed landscape of marriage in Australia in the future. So I thought that was a great opportunity for us to start talking, Lady Gaga, about what's happened this week. It's been a very big week for the queer community this week. So I'm sure um, most of our listeners will be familiar that on Wednesday, um, a vote of 61.6% of Australians was returned as a yes for uh, legalising or changing the law for same-sex couples um, to be able to get married within Australia. Um, So the assumption there being that our government will then... um, take a bill um, on the floor and um, hopefully pass that by the end of the year. So that's uh, very exciting uh, news after what seems like an endless campaign. Um, It's been a very long time coming. You know, we started this months ago um, after a decision by the government that this was an issue that needed to be voted on by the Australian population. Um, And since then we've seen... um, campaigns come out 
by both the yes and no side. And I, for one, about a month in, was just feeling exhausted already. Um, and so it seems it's we've you know we've got an outcome, we've got an answer um, of the voting population of Australia, and it's um, been an overwhelming yes, which okay. is very exciting. But um, at the same time, there's still a long way to go. Okay. Did you want to go into some of the statistics associated with um, the results of the yes and the no votes? I can. So of uh, the Australian population that were uh, asked, there were 16 million um, and 6,180 eligible people um, who could vote. And of those people, 79.5 people returned a vote, which is pretty good turnout. Which is huge, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, if you think about it, over in the UK routine, and America, routinely less than sort of 70 and even 60% of people turn out in actual elections. And if you yeah. look at uh, medical research, you know, a survey, you're lucky if you get 20, 25% response rate. And exactly. it's amongst a, presumably an interested scientific community. So for the population to turn out en masse is terrific. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, ter- it's absolutely huge. It's almost, you know, eight in, eight in ten people. That's mm. really, really great. And especially because it was a postal survey, mm. that's annoying. You have to fill something out. You have to take it to a post box. Do you, do you think part of the high turnout can be explained by a large proportion of the population just wanting to give a big stuff you to the government for I having hope dragged so. us through the process <laughs> in the first place? I very much hope so. Oh. <laughs> but interestingly, so I think it was 0.2% of the returned votes weren't counted. Oh. Um, and that was the reason that was given by the ABS was that um, from those responses, it wasn't clear if a yes or no vote um, was trying to be communicated. And so I wonder, people had been advised to not put anything in their postal survey envelopes. For example, there was a, something going around Facebook for a while. Oh, you know, pop your envelope full of glitter, you know, give a big middle finger to the, you know, government. But those kinds of things were discouraged. So I wonder if um, they contributed to some of the votes that weren't counted. Does it say something about people's intelligence? My recollection of the uh, <laughs> the form was that there were two boxes, one with a I yes know. and one with a no. It's not that hard, people. I know. It's so confusing. I don't, And that's quite a lot of people, you know, <laughs> like... 0.2% of the voting population of 16 million. That's a lot. Um, but, you know, there was all sorts of malicious things that I was reading that um, some people who re- um, received envelopes that had razor blades. Um, it like, you know, that's just not necessary. <laughs> just stick box. And oh, dear me. I know. So, mm. anyway, it, it's been an interesting week. And so, of the results that came back, um, ACT, surprisingly, was the... Well, not surprisingly, I don't... Not surprisingly don't at all. No, ACT was the... Um, I thought it was going to be Victoria. Uh. But, to, to me, surprising. But ACT was the... Um, returned the highest yes vote um, out of all of the states. And New South Wales, the lowest at 57, mm. which was still a yes. But, um, hmm, that was quite an interesting thing for me. That is interesting. Daniel Andrews was very proud of our state, in particular proud of Melbourne I think. He put out a couple of little uh, tweets I think saying that I think Melbourne was the capital city with the largest yes vote. Yes and it most definitely was and I think you could, that would be apparent just walking through Melbourne city. It's a giant rainbow at the moment and it has been for months and the Victorian government I think have really risen to the challenge um, of the, especially mental health implications um, resulting from the, the postal survey. There's been 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars um, contributed towards LGBTIQ uh, organisations working in mental health and healthcare. So that's been really wonderful. And also an unexpected byproduct of of the survey is that uh, organisations that do deal in LGBTIQ mental health have received quite a bit of exposure. um, These these are all things we wouldn't have needed, of course, if we hadn't been dragged through the process in the first place. 100%, 100%. A happy happy byproduct um, if we have to look for a silver lining. (laughs) Oh, I'm, I'm surprised that the, the victory in the survey has been, uh, you know, hailed as a triumph for Malcolm Turnbull, you oh. know, because this was his view all along that uh, uh, equal marriage rights should uh, should prevail and mm. that it's him having a win over the right wing of the party. But really, it, it's no win for, for anybody. It's, it's no. been a terrible process, completely unnecessary, a waste of money and dragged a lot of uh, ill feeling out in the open. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think quite a few members of the queer community have been quite surprised by how impacted they have been um, in their mental health and and they're just having to have conversations that they didn't ask for and didn't feel that they had to. You've had to... It it takes a lot of effort to advocate for yourself when you're a minority and I think that, you know, in people's workplaces and, you know, places where they're not necessarily as speaking about their sexuality or what happens in their bedroom all of a sudden it's it's been something that people have had to kind of take on and as an additional burden and I think people the people at least that I've spoken to have been really surprised um a how involved in the conversation they have had to be and b what a toll it's taken um on their mental and as result physical health so mm-hmm. yeah that's not been ideal. No, that's right. That's something we need to keep in mind, I think. Mm, totally. And I think also there's been a lot of talk about um, same-sex marriage um, and SSM, the hashtag that's going around, if there's any kind of conversation about um, this debate. And I think it's just it, it's important to keep in mind that this just doesn't affect same-sex attracted people. You know, it affects people who are bisexual and who may at the moment be in a, um opposite-sex relationship, but you know, it's hugely validating to have this vote returned to those people who may be attracted to members of the same sex but have not acted upon those those desires or, you know, people who are in um, who are transgender and who, for example, legally um, are female and are married to a male. If they are trans male, want, they would have to divorce at the moment. They would have to divorce their, their partner to be able to change their gender um, legally. So it, it affects more than just people who are, you know, same-sex attracted, I think. And so, you know, the yes vote is, is a huge win for the LGBTIQ community. As a whole. Yeah. As a whole. What do you make of the scare campaigns that have been run around, uh, you know, the possibility of parents having their children taught uh, about same-sex marriage in schools. I don't know about you. I was schooled in the 1980s, but I don't, I don't recall receiving any education around marriage, uh, hetero or or bi or intersex regardless. No, what my sex ed was, I would say, quite absent <laughs> in my religious school. <laughs> we got sex ed in my fairly tepid Anglican school, um, but I don't think that it had any kind of ideological political overtones. No. So I think... Um, hopefully that's, you know, something that could just continue. But it, I, I suppose um, as our society becomes uh, a little bit more complex, it might be useful to have some civics education. That's been something that people have been talking about for a long time. I wonder if there's going to be a stampede for um, mothers buying dresses for their sons. Did you see, <laughs> do you see Are that? you being deliberately provocative, of Lady course. Gaga? <laughs> I think you might be. <laughs> 
I have been told that I need to be a moderator on this particular program, and so I will moderate <laughs> and and say that I think it's unlikely that mothers will be asked to buy oh, dresses for their for their sons. But you know, it's a shame. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> um, I think that this is a conversation that we're going to have to continue to keep having, aren't we? Mm. Um, because what will happen over the next few months and years as this legislation um, is enacted, that there will be all sorts of discussions about uh, its implications for society as a whole. But I, I would hope that it's a positive first step. I hope so. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Step in the right direction. Yeah. So stay tuned. We'll keep you posted. Here on Radiotherapy, we are about to move on to our next discussion, which is actually a very different conversation. So switch gears with me uh, as we start to talk about chimpanzees, their close relationship to human beings, and whether or not that has implications for or against their use in medical research. Triple R, not for everyone. For anyone. Now I'm going to start to talk about the topic which I've prepared for today, which is uh, discussing the issue of uh, chimpanzees and their rights and role in medical research. I'm hoping to get some contributions also from Kent, who, <laughs> as well as running the, um, the machines here today, has now got a voice. I inadvertently took his microphone away from him. Two, two, two. Yeah. <laughs> But now it's back. So welcome, Kent. Um, so we're here with Kent, with um, SK and with Lady Gaga and myself, Perry Partum. So let's just talk about chimpanzees um, in themselves because I think that there are some things that you need to know to frame this particular discussion about whether or not they are useful and whether they should be used in medical research. From the biological point of view, they're probably our closest living relatives. Uh, There's a difference in DNA between two human beings of about 0.2 to 0.5%. And between a human and a chimpanzee, uh, the difference increases to just under 2%. Um, In fact, we are such close relatives that chimpanzees can donate blood to humans and vice versa. Um, always um, allowing that we've got a similar kind of blood group. So chimpanzees are largely group A. Wow. Wow. It's quite amazing, isn't it? Who'd have thought? Yeah. I did not know that. We are learning this morning. Pretty incredible. They can also use sign language um, to communicate. So uh, chimpanzees have been taught um, uh, over 350 different signs for different to mean different words uh, and signifiers. And... uh, um, another fact that I didn't know about chimpanzees before researching this particular segment was, in fact, they have a fairly similar lifespan to humans. So they will live for between 50 and 60 years, including in captivity, um, which means that um, some chimpanzees that were caught in the wild in Africa in the 1960s and 70s for the purposes of medical research are still alive in research facilities in North America. Um, and chimps bred in captivity in the 60s are also still alive. Uh, you should be aware also that both of those practices are now illegal. So there are no chimpanzees which are currently captured for medical research use and there is currently no breeding allowed of chimpanzees. Wow. For medical research purposes. For medical research purposes, that's right. I'm amazed that A, a chimpanzee that was captured in the 1960s for research purposes is still alive, mm-hmm. and, and B, that they're still actually using the same chimpanzees well, over and over for different things. Absolutely. So chimpanzees' similarity to humans has been one of the reasons why they've been used for research. So they've often um, they've been used uh, in particular for HIV research, for hepatitis C research, and more recently for research into the biology of ageing and dementia. Uh, But they were first used, uh, I think, in large numbers in the 1960s for the space program, actually, Uh, and and subsequently for flight research and for high-velocity impact research. So they were used in testing seatbelts. 
uh, in the 1960s oh, and okay. 70s. Um, in the 1980s, there was a breeding program set up um, to respond to the HIV crisis and epidemic because it was considered that as they were our closest known non-human relative that we could better understand the process of HIV in chimps as it relates to humans. And in fact, there are um, there's a couple of sanctuaries specifically for HIV positive chimpanzees um, in North America. There's one in Quebec. Yeah, you guys are all silent. It's pretty grim, isn't it? I'm <laughs> yes. getting onto the happy bit soon. Did you want to have a comment? No, keep going. No, okay. no. All right. I'm, I'm so that's just, I suppose, to frame the discussion, um, that there is a fairly long timeline uh, uh, where um, the idea of using chimpanzees in research started in actually the early 1900s. So in 1913, it was first mooted that this would be a useful thing and the first um, chimpanzees and a bonobo actually were captured for this use and they actually died soon after. But that planted the seed and I suppose then in the 1930s and 40s, um, this idea gained a bit of traction and then in the 1960s, the National Institute of Health set up eight primate research facilities in, in the US. So... Do you see there's an ethical difference uh, mainly on genetic grounds between testing chimpanzees and testing on other animals? I mean, I know the cosmetics industry, for example, has been you know, widely criticised for using rabbits to test cosmetics and, you know, they've developed alternative means of non-animal testing simply because we share a large amount of our genetic code with the chimpanzee. You know, we share 90% of our genetic code with jellyfishes. Is that a sufficient or adequate or necessary threshold along which to draw a comparison? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, comp- it's a complex situation, isn't it? Because it's their similarity to us which means that they are useful subjects, but it's also their similarity to us which brings an ethical consideration into this particular discussion because they probably suffer in a very similar way to which humans suffer. Yeah, I reckon it's pretty easy to get in a bit of quicksand around using the level of similarity um, as the as the question, you know, that is the point of departure. I find a useful question around this is whether we want the first person, if we want the first subject of experimentation to be a human or non-human. So if the if we've got if we if we can model an experiment to test something that addresses Hep C or HIV, um, there's work on it in liver cancer and as you mentioned, aging and so on. If we can model and design experimentation, do we want the first subject of that experimentation to be human or non-human? So you're a pragmatic ethicist. The end justifies the means to oh, save human lives. Therefore, there wasn't a position in my no. statement. It was a it was a, a proposition um, to consider. Yeah, I, 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 I just think if we start talking about percentages of likeness, then as you pointed out, ninety nine. Okay, we say no, ninety nine is too close. Ninety eight. 97, 96, you know, where do you go? I, I suppose that's a reasonable question, but from my perspective, the, the dramatic similarity between chimpanzees and humans is real cause for me for pause because they have the same sorts of social, complex social bonds and, and relationships that we can see. And I suppose this whole conversation um, needs to reference Jane Goodall, who is um, a... A primatologist who worked initially in the 1960s in Tanzania for about, you know, upwards of 50 years, uh, understanding chimpanzee social behaviour and um, and emotional life. And I think it's become clear that in their natural environment in Tanzania, or as close to natural as, as we can observe, they do have hierarchical social structures, they have um, social interactions which include exclusion of um 
different chimpanzees for various reasons and mm. and they also seem to have emotional responses to both physical and emotional pain and um so uh, it's observable that chimpanzees in captivity are kept in individual cages because of the risk of harm from other chimpanzees but that's mental so that that's excluded them from any kind of emotional interaction and they do um become withdrawn they exhibit some of the behaviors that we would in humans associate with depression anxiety or post traumatic stress disorder yeah so then i think where some people then want to be contrarian about those similarities is that um it's benchmarking that against a so-called socialized human and there are plenty of humans that aren't socialized so does that mean that some humans could be the subject of the experimentation so we've got psychopaths sociopaths we've got um um immature humans children etc etc we've got um um mentally disabled and so on and so forth that aren't socialized to the benchmark that you're describing those chimps as having so and and I reckon that's like pre- pulling a thread in a jumper and you don't know where it's going to end up and and as a proud chicken owner you know the same points that you've made about chimpanzees having hierarchical social social structures and excluding specific members of the caste and having emotional responses those same points apply to chickens so again it's uh, a bit of a slippery slope as to where you where you cut the line mm. Yes, that's true. Let's all look forward to the point where um, meat can be created um, in factories without any reference to any <laughs> the death of any, any animal. However, just coming back to chimpanzees yes, for a moment. Yes, what's the good news? <laughs> so the, the good news is that um, the points that both of you have raised have been accepted uh, throughout the world, actually, progressively over time. So, um, as I mentioned, in the 19... 19- Uh, 80s, there was a big explosion in the breeding of chimpanzees in North America, which is really the only place now where chimpanzees are held in large numbers. The rest of the world, um, and particularly the industrialised world, has uh, progressively outlawed the use of chimpanzees in medical research. So I think the first to do that was the UK back in 1997. Uh, And um, New Zealand followed in 2000. The Netherlands banned great ape research, which includes not just chimpanzees, but also gorillas, orangutans and bonobos. That's the group of primates that are designated great apes. Um, They were closely followed by us, Australia, in 2003, where... um, it's not banned, but it's severely limited. And I can talk about the, the, the terms of that limitation in just a minute. Um, it was banned in Sweden in the same year, in 2003, and then in 2006 in Austria, in Japan, 2008 in Belgium. And actually, the other thing that happened in 2008 was that Spain granted great apes legal rights. Wow. Which is an interesting move forward. Uh, that was followed in 2010 by the EU, which then outlawed the use of great apes in research. Um, I think that things that have happened in America are twofold. Firstly, in 2011, um, the Institute of Medicine in the US declared that the use of chimpanzees was largely unnecessary for biomedical research. What they discovered was that HIV did not progress in the same way to the AIDS syndrome in chimpanzees as it did in humans, and so therefore they weren't a terribly useful model. Uh, And then in 2013, the National Institute of Health announced that they would retire 300 chimpanzees who were owned by the government um, and they were to be progressively transferred to sanctuaries around the North American continent. So uh, I think those two things have progressively meant that um, really it's almost impossible for uh, people to obtain new licences. Then in 2015, what really sounded the death knell of animal experimentation on chimpanzees for the pers- purpose of human benefit was that um, the Fisheries and Wildlife Service in the US classified all American chimpanzees as endangered 
um, and so therefore they would need to have an individual permit for any kind of research that would be carried out. So you don't credit then the popularity of the Planet of the Apes <laughs> series for, for changing community <laughs> attitudes? Or I, I, think that's probably, I think that's probably quite pivotal, to be honest. Like, I think um, the public and public outrage has really been what's driven all of these changes and changing public opinion. So I think actually Planet of the Apes movie was probably, and the series of movies that followed it were probably quite important. Just as a postscript to this segment, uh, a friend of mine took his son along for an interview at a prestigious private school and the headmaster sat the kid down and asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up. And this kid's response was he wanted to be a scientist and create a, a race of super intelligent monkeys. <laughs> he got in. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> and his father was sitting there looking sideways at his son going, don't Very say proud. it, don't say it. Yeah, his father's a psychiatrist, what's more. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, um, broadly speaking, what seems to be true is that there is no new animal experimentation on chimpanzees as far as we're aware in North America. The next challenge, however, since that point has really been where did these chimpanzees go? Uh, and often, as I mentioned, they might have been born in the 60s. They've lived in these highly restrictive environments for their entire lives. And just as humans might become uh. institutionalised, they have also probably become institutionalised. There was a big outcry just this year after 20 chimpanzees who were transferred from a research facility to Chimphaven, um, of whom nine died very soon after transfer. Uh, and it was hypothesised that actually probably most of those deaths were not just related to ageing but probably also to psychological stress, um, being confronted with a completely new physical environment as well as a new social environment, whereas previously they'd interacted primarily with their human handlers. Now they had to interact with other chimpanzees and some of them would never have done that. Uh, so the, now it, there's a new kind of welfare issue, isn't there? Yeah. Now there's the welfare of these post, whatever the word comes after post in this situation. Post-research. Post-research. Yeah, and actually there's um, there's a sanctuary called Save the Chimps, which is in Florida. It's a series of interconnected islands where the chimpanzees live um, and they have actually got individual bios of all the chimpanzees that live there and they talk about what they were used for um, and where they had been um, housed. <laughs> and I, I can't help but bring a Larson cartoon to mind, two chimps in the sanctuary <laughs> sitting next to each other. One turns to the other and says, what are you in for? Yeah, well, see, this is the thing. <laughs> you know, it, there's, there's always this question of how human are they really, yeah, yeah. which is obviously the whole point of all the Gary Larson cartoons. So, so that's, I suppose, the next question. How do we retire all of these currently about 400-and-something chimpanzees who are still housed in research laboratories around North America haven't yet made the move to sanctuaries because they're either considered too psychologically or physically frail to do so? Hmm. Is there a, is there a, um, is there a global covenant, anything international covenant-wise for this or are the jurisdictions like you broke them down for us as top end top of the top of your discussion um but for something like this is there such a thing at play i don't think that there's anything that transcends national guidelines mm -hmm. mm. apart from the eu ban of course yeah, yeah. Mm. so yeah i think i've silenced everybody but i, I, I yeah, wanted to I, just bring you up to date on that because it's something i had not previously been very cognizant on but um it's obviously an opportunity for us to have a further discussion we might have it off air though because we need to move on to our next discussion which is about humans three triple ah. uh 
Hamlet, arguably one of Shakespeare's best-known plays and one which has sort of resonated with audiences down the ages. And it's one of the theories of great storytelling that a story that survives and becomes retold uh, becomes and remains popular because it brings up universal uh, human themes that are common to all of us in our struggles with life. And And that's certainly a case that's been made for Hamlet as well. For those of you who don't know the uh, the structure of the play, uh, Han- Hamlet is a prince in Denmark. He's summoned home from school in Germany to attend his father's funeral and he's shocked when he gets back to find that his mother Gertrude has already married uh, his uncle, uh, Claudius, the dead king's brother. And to Hamlet, this marriage is foul incest. Uh, worse still, uh, Claudius, the uncle, has had himself crowned king despite the fact that Hamlet was next in line to the throne and Hamlet suspects foul play in his father's demise. Indeed, he's visited shortly thereafter by his father's ghost who tells him that he was murdered by Claudius and pleads with Hamlet to avenge his death but to spare his mother and to let heaven decide her fate. And Hamlet... Uh, pretends madness initially. He was a little bit sceptical about the motives of the ghost and wanted to suss things out for himself. So he pretended to be mad in his eyes in order to better enable him to observe the goings-on in the castle because mad people tend not to get too closely scrutinised. He suspects that maybe the ghost is an agent of the devil sent to tempt him. Hamlet devises a plan to test the ghost's sincerity and he engages uh, the aid of a troupe of travelling players to perform a play to which Hamlet has added scenes that recreate the murder of his father in the way that the ghost described it. So he gets this play performed in front of the new king and uh, the new king's reaction is certainly suspicious uh, to these staged murders that are recreated in the play and Hamlet at that point resolves to kill him. But he struggles with this decision. He procrastinates. He puts off the decision to kill the usurper, whilst, strangely enough, killing a number of other people in the process. So he doesn't seem morally opposed to killing, but he uh, particularly appears to be morally opposed to killing his uncle, who killed his father and married his mother. Uh, Hamlet's behaviour results in the death of his sister. She drowns whilst grieving for the father's death and for for Hamlet's behaviour. doesn't Hamlet. she also go mad? I think she, she does. She madness. descends into madness mm. and starts singing love songs in a pool and I think drowns there. Uh, Hamlet's brother Laertes, who witnesses his sister's decline and, and death, uh, confronts Hamlet after her funeral uh, with an argument about which one of them loved the sister the more. Uh, they engage in a sword fight. Uh, with the brother having conspired with the uncle to kill Hamlet. He sort of poisons his sword and uh, engages Hamlet in a sword fight. He loses his sword at one point during the fight and Hamlet strikes him, cuts him, uh, inadvertently therefore poisoning his brother and leading to his death. But at the same time, the brother Laertes indicated that because of a wound he'd inflicted on Hamlet during the battle, Hamlet too was doomed to die. Uh... Whilst all this sword fighting is going on, uh, Hamlet's mother drinks a toast to Hamlet from a cup of poisoned wine that was intended for the king, and she dies. It's a typical Shakespeare tragedy. Everybody dies. It's just a pile of humans on the stage at yeah. the end, right? And, and on seeing poison. the death of his own mother, 
Hamlet then uh, immediately kills uh, Claudius, the uncle. So, you know, what's going on here? You've got this very conflicted man who doesn't want to uh, follow through on his promise to, to avenge his father, yet seems to have no trouble in killing other people. He seems particularly uh, conflicted uh, on moral and perhaps psychodynamic grounds as well. He becomes suicidal at one point and his famous soliloquy, to be or not to be can be viewed as uh, moralising over whether or not he should take his own life to continue to be or to not to be. Or indeed, uh, the flip side of the same soliloquy is should he follow through on killing his uncle and be king of Denmark or not be king of Denmark. And uh, the famous Sigmund Freud actually uh, devoted some time to the analysis of uh, Hamlet's character and his inner conflicts. And Freud came up that, uh, with the proposition that Hamlet's procrastination over this decision uh, may well be the consequence of an Oedipal complex. In other words, the son postpones this act of revenge because of an impossibly complicated psychodynamic situation in which he finds himself. Although he hates his uncle, he nevertheless unconsciously identifies with his uncle for having killed his father and marrying his mother, thus fulfilling the Oedipal wishes that we're all said to have as children. So in other words, Claudius has carried out Hamlet's own unconscious wishes, leading Hamlet to identify with his uncle to the extent that killing him might in fact be representative of killing the self. So uh, following through on these destructive impulses, uh, the threat of that meets with great anxiety and repressed wishes on Hamlet's part, which is a fairly bizarre way of interpreting uh, his actions. But when you think about the, the resonance that the Oedipal complex has carried through Western 20th century thought, for example, it does make sense and it enables him to carry out acts of killing uh, apparently without compulsion for other individuals whilst explaining his procrastination and his tension and his agonising over this uh, seemingly straightforward decision to, uh, to kill uh, the person who killed his father. Whether or not he was psychotic, of course, it's perhaps a, a, a more parsimonious explanation. Depends at the end of the day on your view on ghosts and their validity. Can you remind us what um, uh, Hamlet's mum had to say about things as they were unfolding? She was obviously complicit to a certain extent, right? Your knowledge of Hamlet is better than mine, Kent, so you might have to rem remind me, preferably in the original verse. Well, well, why I, I, I'm, I'm racking my brain. I, my memory is that she's very marginal, you know, and, and there's a feminist interpretation of Hamlet that the central character really is is Hamlet's mum, but she's actually quite voiceless in this. So it's either a revenge drama, Hamlet revenging on his father's murder, or it's an Oedipal drama. In either case, Hamlet's mum's you know, silent. And either way, it's terrific drama. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's very true. I've never even thought about Oedipal, um, the Oedipal dynamic as, as part of Hamlet, to be quite honest. I've never considered it, but it makes sense the way you talk about it. I, um, I can understand you for never having considered it. It's not the sort of thing that we consciously bring to, to mind in everyday life. Thank you for listening. <laughs> no, I'll have to go back and have a little look at um, Hamlet itself. Did you Did you have any further thoughts about whether or not whether or not that was something that would would benefit further discussion? 
Well, there are alternative readings of Hamlet. I mean, Kent yeah. has alluded to feminist readings, for example, mm-hmm. and whilst I don't consider myself adequately placed to give a literate feminist reading of the text, I can give a feminist reading of, uh, of the Alien f- uh, series of films. I'd be happy to come back and do that at some stage. Excellent. Let's talk about that <laughs> next time. Thank you very much, everybody. Goodbye from us at Radiotherapy. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.